0: And it's strange how even the wind might not be blowing, but the wind chimes will chime sometimes when I'm out there. And I find this comfort. I find this peace and this joy in knowing that dad is there, that he's watching over us. And sometimes they clang and clang and they won't stop clanging. And I just know in this moment, (laughs) he is telling me a story. (laughs) or praying for us.
1: Hey family, I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely,
0: but you are not alone. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Jenna. <laughs> well, hello. I'm Thanks. here. Haha. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. Today, we want to introduce one of our sisters. Yeah. Jenna. I'm here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for those of y'all who don't know, Jenna's the baby Yeah, of the family. And I always call you the funny one. Oh, good. I think you're the fine. funny one too. Well, don't tell Allison. Because Allison. <laughs> <laughs> Allison's also very, very funny. So, it's kind of hard to, I feel like, decide which one's funnier. I think they're they're funny in their own way. Totally. You know? And yeah. when you two are together, oh, God, forget it. Yeah. Like all my a whole new dynamic. It's <laughs> like my stomach and my shoes yeah. hurt from hanging out with you. That is so kind. Oh, Thank you for saying oh, that. Awesome. Yeah. We're so glad that you're here with us today, especially to talk together about our lives and our experiences, both with grief and, and then and in, in life together. And so, you know, we we often have conversations like this where we just sit around and talk about life and share together and laugh together and we hope that everyone who's listening that you feel like you're just sitting at a table with sisters hanging out. Yeah, I was going to say I feel like once a year, once every couple of years us sisters get together and gather around a kitchen table or a kitchen counter and we can't stop. We talk all night. Absolutely and Yeah, because there's four of us, it's hard to have all of us. And, you know, we often see each other, you know, two of us will see each other regularly or this, these two, or these two. Yeah, To have all four of us in the same place at the same time is the more difficult thing. But when it it happens, it's magic. I agree. So we want to also introduce you not just to Jenna as our baby sister, because she's more than that. (laughs) Let me (laughs) say a little bit more about her. She is that. And it's awesome. And it makes us really happy. But Jenna is also, she has many roles in her life. One is that she's an occupational therapist, and she's helped all different kinds of people. Right now, more recently, she's been helping little people to navigate yeah, life. school system. It's, I've been doing this for 11 years, which is crazy to say. But yes, my, my current job is with the school system and working with students. Yeah, so she helps young people develop all different kinds of skills that they need to get through life and to do life well and to feel like themselves and like they belong. But before this, she has also helped people recover from traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. She's helped older people get back into life after they've had A difficult fall or something like that so she's done occupational therapy in a variety of ways helping all different groups of people from the very little to the older ones which is really cool she's worked with people across different lifespans but also it's important for you to know that jenna is a wife she's a mother of two kids right now her kids are five and eleven yes just turned eleven and she also is, uh, she gets stressed out, especially. She's a, a a cleaner. Yes, I can't help myself. I When people ask me what my hobbies are, is it weird for me to say my hobby is cleaning? But I'm one of those people that if I'm watching a really intense sports game, you can hear my dustbuster come out and Rob's like, why are you cleaning the fridge right now? What are you doing? Come sit down and I'm vacuuming the fridge. You know, I'm just one of those people that <laughs> If I have moments of anxiety or stress, stay out of the way, but the house will be spotless, right? So that is definitely one of my hobbies. (laughs) Jen, is there anything you want to add that you feel like listeners need to know a little bit more about who you are or what you do? Yeah. So I think you touched on a lot of things that I identify with, mom, wife, OT, healer. I think that's something I, I feel like I'm healing. And I also play a big part in healing other people, whether that's community reintegration or advancement in grades, you know, fine motor skills, self-regulation skills, social skills, all those kinds of things. I think, too, that you're an incredible friend. You're not one of those people who wants to be friends with a 100 people shallowly, like in shallow ways. You're really, really good friends with a good, you know, 15 people or so. I would say that when you just really invest in their lives, you know about the whole of their lives. You are intentional about staying connected with them, making them laugh, being there for them in the midst of difficult things. So you're a really good friend. To uh, well, thank you. I I do cherish my friendships. Like you said, my connections are smaller, but my connections are big. And so I think they my friends mean a lot to me as well. Speaking of friendship, we want to do some rapid fire question. Oh, to, you know, quickly, your, your sort of gut response to these things. But the first has has to do a lot with friendship. Would you <laughs> describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? I feel like I have always been an extrovert. But the older I get, I find myself being more introverted. And I think... A lot of that comes with my marriage. My husband is a very introverted person. And we spent, tend to spend a lot of time with our family, our, you know, our immediate family, our children. Do you know your Enneagram, Enneagram number? Oh, I would have to look it up. But yes, I, I I have it in an email. Okay. Are you, do you know what the sort of... Uh, I want to say I'm like one in seven. So are you a perfectionist? Yes. Right. You're a one, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I do think you're a one. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> it really does. A one with a wing, too, because two, you're a real helper of people and you love. Yeah. So I would say as a healer, it makes a lot of sense that you would be a one wing, too. I mean, at least, you know, I'm pretending like I'm an expert in the. But if you say anything with confidence, people will believe. 100%. We learned that. <laughs> you sounded really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you sounded <laughs> like, you know, what you're talking about. This must be a genetic trait because my son, who is only five years old, he will, with confidence, tell you something <laughs> that he did in the school. Life. Yeah, in school or with a friend. And I could have been present and I can say, you realize it absolutely did not happen. <laughs> but he has convinced everyone around him that it happened. Oh, yeah. He actually is very good at that. He would make a great <laughs> professor. When We're going to talk about dad later, but I think that sounds a lot like dad. I do think it's a genetic thing. Wow. We all got that. Yeah. A lot of us did, at least. Yeah. <laughs> hmm For sure. What is the best compliment you've ever received? I think you might have just said it, yeah <laughs> uh, not well, not the best, but yes compliment. Uh, one time after a meeting, like I, like we all talked about, I'm an occupational therapist, and after a meeting, a coworker came up to me and she said, "You are so well spoken. I wish that you would be." a professor. I think you would be excellent at teaching. And to kind of piggyback that, someone said to me, oh, you should totally write a blog. So I feel like when people have complimented me on my communication skills. It's true. Mm, So true. (laughs) I'm sure that that brought you joy. We would love to know... Could you talk a little bit about how joy has found you recently? Like, what's one way that joy has found you? Definitely, I feel very fulfilled in my job in certain ways when I'm working directly with students. And I had an experience this week where I put together a craft that had fine motor skills, visual perceptual skills, different things for a group of students ages K through five. And it just went really well. It was a a tactile type project. We were putting together a sensory book about farm animals. And it just was, it was so joyful to see the kids enjoy doing it and being able to name the different animals and feel the different textures. I feel like that brought me a lot of joy. And then one more thing. I'm sorry, I know you said only one thing, but my husband travels a lot. And this week he's come back in town. And he had bought a book for our son, and it's a chapter book, and he's been reading it to him each night. And that brings me so much joy to see that little connection before bedtime. That's so great. Yes. All right. We're done
1: with those rapid fire questions. Oh, okay. Good. And relieve you of that. <laughs> but I thought I would mention that today we're going to talk about our dad in this episode and in particular, his addiction. And, you know, we feel like a lot of people can relate to loving someone Mm -hmm. with an addiction. Yes. And wanting to help them. So this is a really great topic for you, Jenna. But sisters, before we get your answers and get started in this combo, we're going to take a quick break.
0: All right. Sounds good.
1: Hey, family, this is Coach Steph, and we want you to know that we appreciate you. If you wouldn't mind, and especially if you found our podcast helpful, please follow, rate, and or officially subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. This helps us grow and gets the word out to more listeners who really and truly need us. You can also consider supporting us even further by pressing the support button in our Anchor podcast link found in the show notes. Even $1 a month is helpful for us to continue to bring amazing guests and content to your ears. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Welcome back. Today we're talking about our dad. Mm-hmm. And I think before we get into maybe his addiction, we should each start by talking about who he was as a person. Yeah, for sure. And for me, I mean, you all know uh, that my mom and dad, because we all shared the dad, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about eight years old. So I pretty quickly lived in another state. And dad was always this amazing person that i got to visit he was also somebody that i missed terribly but i always thought he was so handsome yes he, oh, yeah. and striking just
1: yeah you know when when my parents were married he would wear these really cool suits oh yeah you know, he was always an when 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 my parents were married when i was about seven he actually worked at their tv station too yeah and he was like he would drop me off at school and the kids would say that's your dad he's on tv <laughs> you know so he was just a cool dude and yeah. that was always my best interpretation of him
0: yeah i think people should know he was six two very broad shoulders very jet black hair jet black beard so he was quite the presence when he walked into a room he filled the room because he was also for me i would say charismatic is the way i would describe him oh for sure incredibly charismatic he never met a stranger which i take after him in that uh, <laughs> i feel that you know so he could walk into any place anywhere and strike up a conversation with someone connect with them he whenever i remember watching him in the courtroom also at church if he was on a stage if he had an audience um, also he he was an actor and so he had a great singing voice, too. Yeah, he had a great singing, yeah. voice, too, yeah. great singing voice, too. Yeah, so That's he was That's talented. Yeah. So, right, and then he did all the sports in high school and everything like that. So he had this very, very charismatic personality, big presence on a stage, and he could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. Oh, for sure. He could convince you of just about anything. Yeah. I know we kind of talked about that earlier. For me, he was funny he yeah. was bigger than life everything that he did was big right he if he was going to decorate the house <laughs> yeah. it was covered yeah. in <laughs> halloween decorations right. and he's wearing a gorilla suit right like he <laughs> if he went on vacation and he brought you back a souvenir it was hermit crabs right like he's just this yeah. big yeah. present take care of and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Three, four. Yeah. For? yeah. Like really. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not a postcard. About... cut It's like a something that you need <laughs> yeah. a stuffed animal. Yeah. A that, real animal. A real animal that needs the whole sanctuary and you need to tend to everything. Yeah, that's it. it over that, top. About everything. 100 percent Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And he yeah, he was the master. We I think you said in his eulogy at his funeral, the master of silly grins. Like you said, he just had the silliness about him. This lightness about him for much of his life. Oh, for sure. That was, yeah, his joy was contagious. He was an infectious person. I was going to say he was very infectious. Yeah. Yeah, Like he was, yeah. And his smiling eyes were, Mm. you know, always sparkly smiling eyes. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, transitioning a little bit (laughs) to some of his later life, we want to talk today about his difficulties with
1: addiction and. I, I think I and I, I want each of you all to share your thoughts on it too. I first realized that he had a problem when he would call me on the phone. You know, he was always
0: good about calling on birthdays. When I had my first child, Mason, he was he called me a ton actually. And oh, let's uh, talk about that for one second, just in the middle of the night, because he was a night owl. Yes, yeah, he was a night owl, and you know. Mason was born in
1: 94. Dad was very with it then. And he would call me at like 11, 12 o'clock at night,
0: which normally like, who does that? But every time he did, I happened to be breastfeeding or something like that. Like I was, like I was up with the baby and he would just hang out with me
1: and chat with me. Oh, that's sweet. And so that was when he was, like I said, like very with it.
0: And you know, a few years later, you started to notice, like, a little slur in his words. <laughs> uh, he wasn't necessarily a big drinker or anything like that, like, or that he was sleepy or that he would ramble on and on and on. And, and that's when it kind of got weird for me, like, what's going on in this situation? And that's kind of like when he started having some medical problems and stuff like that. So what did you guys start noticing some changes what a hard transition this is to talk about all the amazing and wonderful qualities of him but you're right there there was this moment and I think for all of us because he lived out of town for all of us phone conversations for sure when I would talk to him on the phone he could be like you said he would ramble and then he would kind of drift off and I would have to say dad and it was like I woke him back up. Very strange for him. That's not him. He was always articulate. He was always telling good stories, big stories, right? And he he just couldn't keep his train of thought, really. I also noticed when he would forget, he would forget holidays. He would forget birthdays. He would call the day after my birthday. And my goodness, I was born in a flood. And he was my father. How can you forget May 8th? Right. And he did, though. He... He would call the next day and say, Happy birthday. And I would say, Yeah, it was yesterday. It was awesome. And then he would joke about why he didn't call on that day and not really admit to the fact that he forgot. Yeah. Yes. I think it's important to say that both, uh, all of us sort of grew up having to see him on weekends or in summers. Our parents got divorced, Jenna, when I was seven and a half, right? I think, and you were. I was yeah, like five, turning six or something you like know, that when it all started. Yeah, so a lot of we spent time away from him a lot, and so we did a lot of phone calls. But the phone calls that we're describing were in adulthood for all of us because our dad struggled with addiction to opioids toward the, in the last twelve years of his life, and he died right before he turned seventy years old. But ultimately, yes, he and it, so what was difficult about his addiction, and I'm sure a lot of people who are listening who love someone who've been addicted to opioids, can relate to this. What what was difficult was that he actually did have medical problems. He had two hip replacements that ended up meant that that he lived in a wheelchair for much of the last years of his life. And I never quite knew, like, how much he needed these or not. And then, so for a while, it was just... It was validating. Yeah, well, it was just like, oh, of course he's sleepy. Of course he's struggling with talking the way that he used to or going to work or not dressing the way he used to because now he's in a wheelchair or he's on, he has to be on this medication. He's in pain a lot. Yeah. And he so he's even had surgeries. Right. You know, he's gone through hospitalizations that were pretty challenging. Sure. So some of that felt validating. Like, well, of course he needs these medications because he's healing. Right. I And I agree with you because I think even at that time, you know, that those times years ago, a lot of people were taking these opioids. Like I was a dental hygienist, and we would give them to someone for a toothache. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like this was like we had a you know a drawer full
1: <laughs> as samples oh, of our, in our office, our office, you know. And so you're like, oh, she, you know, she took a thing and she's sleepy now, or you know, whatever. Or go, don't, don't be
0: driving heavy machinery, you know. <laughs> yeah, and obviously we could dedicate an entire episode to to pharmaceutical companies and how they monopolized the system and doctors and nurses and dentist offices and so on. And wow, it makes tons and tons of money on the backs of people and their lives. And so I do talk a little bit about this in my book, but there's a really, really wonderful book called Dope Sick that I recommend to people about the opioid crisis in the United States and how we got to the moment that we're in today. But largely, it started in the 70s in urban communities, among uh, specifically African Americans and urban communities that were in poverty. And then it moved into more uh, like cities and then into suburban communities. And it really became a quote unquote crisis when it moved into white suburbia. That's when people woke up and realized, oh, we we should pay attention to this. But we needed to pay attention for since the 70s to this, to opioids and how it was impacting people's lives. But again, that's a different episode. I did We did want to recommend the book Dope Sick, among other books that talk about this opioid and its impact on Americans. Our dad is just one of those people. But, you know, so for us, it was difficult at first to realize he had an addiction because he, he did have medical problems. For me, I realized, oh, this man has a problem, a significant problem, when it began to impact every aspect of his life. And, it, and I realized it's not just phone calls. You're no longer leaving your house. You're not going to church anymore. Like the man who has gone to church his entire life because he really loves the Lord is no longer going to church. He has quit his job. He's not eating out anymore. He's not coming to events that are important in our lives. All of a sudden, I realized it was just so I don't know that there was one moment. I can't remember one moment of clarity, but there was a time in my mid-20s when I realized, oh, my goodness, everything in our dad's life is wrapped up in getting more drugs, like more opioids. And that he was going to doctor after doctor after doctor, like one would like shut him down. And then he was driving with the, you know two hours to go to doctor's appointment. Yeah, it's time to line. Yeah, a whole bit. Yeah, to get to get, oh, yeah, it, was, it was a complete shift in the person that we knew and loved yeah. as our father. then yeah, the he, extreme, extreme extrovert, <laughs> right, <laughs> became the hermit. Oh, a hundred percent. So I would love to talk for a few minutes, if we can, about loving someone with an addiction. I think that a lot of listeners. You know, there's probably a good number of people that are in that that know about grief and and part of that are listening to us, like the grief of of loving someone with an addiction. How how did each one of us, in our own way, do that? I mean, how did we continue to try to love him? And did that? I mean, I think for each one of us, it looked a little bit different. Because the thing is, is that sometimes you can love someone with an addiction and stay in relationship with them the exact same way and then sometimes you have to distance yourself from them in a few ways and sometimes you you have to distance yourself entirely Mm -hmm. Uh, it's weird how it's all circling back because now that we're talking about this and i'm realizing that ways that i loved my father was cleaning his house isn't that crazy now that we're talking about all this (laughs) i would go to his house And I would organize everything. I would organize his kitchen. I would do all of his dishes. I would sweep his floor. I would vacuum his carpets. I would make his beds. And I'm realizing I love people through that. It's just what I do. And I would clean his space and think, oh, this I'm loving him. I'm helping him. Sometimes you just get overwhelmed and your space gets overwhelmed and cluttered. And sometimes that stress can be relieved if you just can organize and clean your space. But then I would come back just a few months later and things would be in shambles again. And I tried so hard to love him through that, to show him that I cared about him. I cared about his space and because he was spending more time in that space, that I would create a sanctuary for him, a comfortable place that smelled good, that was clean, and maybe relieve some of that stress or anxiety or reasons for why he felt he needed to take the medications, right? And I tried to love him in that way. And I just realized that even still, even through that, I, I was trying to make a difference but felt like my hands were kind of tied, right? Yeah. Isn't it interesting how a physical space can be a metaphor for the inner things that are going on? Sure. I think about dad's house and I feel like that it was a perfect metaphor for the chaos and destruction that was happening within. Because over time, it just every time I went back there, more and more things were broken. Oh God, it, it doorknobs were being held together by duct tape. There were trash bags of trash in the living room that weren't being taken out. There, oh my gosh, his refrigerator, the shelves—I've never seen in my lifetime a refrigerator where the shelves were crooked, and everything was so spoiled that it created, you know, a stench when you opened it. Yeah, just I've never seen a fridge like that before. Right. Yeah, so his, I mean, his house was this representation of the state of, I feel like, his soul and of everything in his life. It was just everything you said, I think at some point, whether this was on or not, but that his life was in shambles. And it's just like, so it was like, all of a sudden, all of us realized, oh, wow, he's he is totally caught up in addiction. And when I realized that for myself, loving him became a question of how do I love him well and love myself? Yeah, And for me, that meant going to therapy. And when I was in my late 20s, I went and I found a therapist who specialized in, in helping people walk with someone else through addiction. And I spent like eight months talking to this therapist about how to have good boundaries with our dad, how to love him, but also love myself. Yeah, And so for me, oh, that started, yeah, for me, that started with, I I'm put up a boundary around how long I talked to him. And so I would often call him when I had to be somewhere within 20 or 30 minutes. And that really helped me a lot. So I would say, hey, dad, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you while I'm driving to this meeting I have in 20 minutes when I have 20 minutes to talk to you now. But then that way is he said things that were hurtful or if I felt like that it was triggering me too much and I was realizing his addiction was very apparent that day, then I could let him go within, you know, a good amount of time. So like loving him with boundaries. Yeah. Loving him with that. That's how it needed to be for me personally. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I was a little more disconnected. He's in Kentucky. I'm in New Mexico and I had my own family by then. And so I think So much of our connection was phone calls that it was frustrating for me Mm -hmm. to get a call or to call him and
1: have him just be babbling on or repeating or not even allowing you to get a
0: word in, you know. And he would talk about all of his ailments Mm -hmm. and never even ask me about anything going on in my life. And so I had I had some you know frustration and uh, and so. I would have to tell myself this is my only relationship with him, so I need to be patient and just allow him to talk. He obviously needs to talk. Yeah, needs and, that needs, connection. Yeah, and and he was always praying at the end. You know, he would pray for you at the end of the, and his prayers would like. You could put the phone down and come back, and he would still be are oh, You didn't you put the phone down. down, right? I mean, don't lie. You 100% put the phone down. We all did. Can we all agree that I'll put the phone okay, down? Okay, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Because the thing is, is that you would say to him, oh, Dad, I have to go. And you'd be like, well, let me pray for you. And you can't. The problem is that We can't. <laughs> can't. If somebody wants to pray for you, you'd be like, no, I'm going to go right now. You know, like they want you. They want to pray for you. So you're like, okay. And then you do like an eight minute prayer with a sermon in the middle and everything. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, my gosh, you're still talking to me. It's just your it's your prayer. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, my, you know, mine was just trying to be a good listener at the time, you know, until the
1: until the calls. It chokes me up like the calls got less and less and they got less and less
0: for sure. And, and then you realize, like, I'm not even talking to dad anymore. Like I'm talking right. to it's a different person. I'm talking to drugs right now, oh. you know. And so I think for you, Jenna, you know, because you were closer to him than us, let's talk a little bit about what you tried to do to help him once you got there. And, you know, you were really the one who had resources. You were trying to help someone with an addiction, namely our dad. Oh, yeah. So what did that really look like for you? Well, you're right, because you said, you know, I had different types of connections and working in the medical field and specifically in occupational therapy. At the time, I worked at a skilled nursing facility and often with patients around his age. And I had realized that he had had this addiction. And I had had several conversations with him over the years of, let me help. Let me find a facility that you can do rehabilitation for your leg. I would send him and OT exercises following, you know, bilateral hip replacements. So I would try my best to give him the resources that he needed in the space that he had. But there came a time where he, gave, he called me in desperation for help. He was seeking a way out of his life, so to speak. He wanted to be out of his space. He told me he felt unsafe He was very scared. His voice was very anxious. And I was led to believe that he was ready. He was ready for a change and he was ready to move on. And so I felt so lucky that at the moment I had all of these resources at my fingertips. At the time I was living in Ohio, but I also worked at sister facilities that were in Kentucky. And I reached out to a skilled nursing facility that I had worked at because I'm dual licensed and worked there occasionally. I knew the director and found that we could get him a bed and was able to talk with them about what steps he needed to take in order to move in there and and to live there. And I even went as far as to print out and send to him paperwork for insurance for Medicare in order for him to stay and live in this facility, you know, with very little money, right? He didn't eat the money. The insurance would be there for him. And just like you said, I had a family of my own at the time. I had a, a, a little girl and working full time. And I just remember there were nights that I would be on the phone for hours talking to adult protective services. And could they go in and, and, and help him? Medicare, how do, how do I sign him up for this? What kind of information is he going to need to have for this? Even at one point, I had locked myself in the bathroom and remember seeing my daughter Handy's his fingers under the door. Mm-hmm. And I had just spent so much of my time and energy mm-hmm. and resources to, to give him this way out I, that I thought he was ready for. I think, and so you and I, we were, and this is Angela talking, Jenna and I went to his house and it was the week of Christmas. and. We thought that we were going to, that he was, as Jenna was saying, like, we thought that he was ready. Well, we created a plan. And so, yeah, we had a plan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I feel like we made a plan. What we did is made a plan to go into his space. We were prepared for it to be unsafe. Yeah. We had our husbands with us. And so it was this, we're ready to have this intervention. We kind of scripted what we were going to say, because at the time it was a two and a half hour drive. And so... We made sure we were ready Where we were for Christmas. Yeah. 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 We both yeah, lived we... in other states, but we, when we had come to Kentucky for Christmas. Right. We were in, we normally spent Christmas in Lexington two and a half hours away from mm-hmm. him. And like you said, yeah, so we like tell our extended family, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go help him. We're basically, we're on a rescue mission. Oh, we're ready for sure. Like, it... I mean, it's like a television show, like thinking back. I mean, we were, we, like, had our people, we had our team, we told everybody what we were doing, we were ready to, like, pack bags quickly. We yeah. had a room ready at yeah. the skilled nursing facility. That's right. I had all the information I needed in case he didn't fill out the paperwork. Well, he told you he didn't feel safe, so you guys brought your husbands, you know, you didn't know oh, yeah. what you were getting into necessarily. We didn't know what kind of space we were going to be coming into. Sure, sure. sure. And I think we called you, right, and told you like he's ready to change. We're gonna help him. Like, please be praying for us. Yep. All this stuff. Yeah. So, okay. And then we we go there, and I remember. I mean, first of all, when we walked in to the house, I had a like my the melt within ten seconds of arriving. My heart sank, and it was like I knew this is going to go very poorly. Like everything in my that was my initial—because the yeah. moment we, we got no Merry Christmas, no, like, proper greeting, like, because normally he would hug us, he would kiss us, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, he would have a Santa hat on. Right. Not like—I mean, even in his—yeah, but there was just, like, nothing, and it was like, I need you to take me to the pharmacy to get my pills. Yeah, that's that's what— That was the first thing you said. We that was have. the red flag for me as well, because— normally you exchange salutations. And when we walked in, (laughs) the first words, I kid you not, the first words he said to us was, I need you to take me to CVS or Walgreens, whatever his pharmacy was, because I need to refill these and had them like clenched in his hands. It was crazy. Wow. I think this is a good time for a quick break. We'll be right back. I think we both realized in that moment when he asked us when that was the first thing that came out of his mouth, or the no salutations, like he said, no greeting, and that that was the first thing he wanted and really the only thing he wanted, that it was going, it was not going to go the way that we thought. Oh, and I just remember in my head thinking how sad and how defeated I immediately yes. felt. Like, I don't know if he felt that as well, but it was this moment of Everything had come to a crescendo, right? I thought we had, we were turning a corner. And in that very second, in that very moment, the first sight of him Uh and the first words that he had to say, let us know that things have not changed, that this was a manipulation. Mm -hmm. It felt immediately like a manipulation. Yeah, Yeah, I, I think all at once, my heart sank and I was filled with rage. It was like this immediate like I don't I was wildly sad and it and it, and then incredibly filled with rage like I cannot believe that I had that we have done all that we have to help you and to be ready to take you out of the situation and you this is what you want from us and it just spiraled from there. Well that's so interesting that you say that because I had a little bit of a different experience. I don't know if it's that I know we talked about helper healer, but I wanted so badly to fix it in that moment. Yeah. I, at that moment, I felt defeated, and I knew what was happening. But I wanted so desperately to fix it, and so I remember, no, we have this plan, and yeah, we, we can still fix. This. Can we fix. It. can fix. I still, yeah, I can still help him change. I know I can make a difference, and so I took the time at that minute, at that moment, to say. Dad, we love you, and we care about you, and we're here for you, and we've done, all, see, all these things. It's ready. Come with us, right? Come with us. We, we've got all these things to make you feel safe and to feel comfortable, and it's ready for you. Yeah. You didn't have to put any work into it. We've done all of that. I know that's hard to take that step through the door, so to speak, metaphorically and physically, but we're, we're here with open arms please accept this, accept us again. And so our, our strategy shifted where, and we all decided, we said, let's sit in a circle. We 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 got him wheel, you know, himself to the living room and we all sat with him in chairs and we sat in a circle and it really became, you know, okay. An intervention. It was an intervention, but it was like, yeah. And we were like, let's try to help him. It was almost, we didn't even use words. It's not like we told each other these things. Oh, we weren't prepared that deeply for this experience because I thought he'd be ready with his bags. Yeah, we did. We thought it was going to be like, oh, we're all like leaving immediately to go, you know, to take him to this facility. And then we tried to explain what you had done, what was prepared for him, how his life could change. And he was asking the questions and inquiring about the space. And he was looking as though he was making this turn and this shift to make a change. And then he asked, what about my money? Well, how would I take my medication? And so I described to him what that looks like in a facility and where they take care of the medications for you. They make sure you get them at the right times. And you're, you're going to have everything that you need. Money-wise, your insurance is going to cover that. Well, where does the rest of my money go? Well, what's left over are things that you use for your materials. You know, your shampoo, your conditioner, your blankets, all all your personal items and belongings. And he stopped me, right? I feel like he interjected. The thing that's really clear in my mind is that he wanted you. He, he when you explained the medicine, because even the money wasn't a big thing to him. I don't. I feel like the money was the thing that he cared about. But what he the moment that everything shifted, from what I remember. Is that he wanted you, to, he wanted to take his pill bag because he had this. He had like a, if you could imagine like a black gym bag. Yeah, like a duffel that's bag. What he had, a duffel bag. And it had all of his pills in it. I mean, that's how many pills he was. Yeah. Helping. The bottle. Not that and he, he had organizers. Like, he would take it everywhere with him and he would zip it and unzip it, zip it and unzip it. Like it was like this anxiety. He just constantly wanted it near him and counting. And then, yeah. Count, yeah. And so he said he wanted you he wanted you to help hide it and take it and he wanted you to bring it to him whenever he needed it. Yeah, essentially he said, Okay, I'll go. Right. But I want you to keep this bag and I want whenever I need it, I want you to bring it to me. Right. And I and wanted to be able to supplement the medicines that they yeah, gave like him with essentially op- his his own opioids. And you obviously would lose your medical license if you participated in something like this. You, you know, and even just, even if you weren't an occupational therapist, you weren't going to participate in his addiction. That wasn't, that wasn't part of the deal. And so the moment you said no to that, everything shifted. I honestly think I may have blacked out at that point because you have, and my husband has described to me what he said and did in the moments after that and for the life of me i can't recall it i think yeah well i guess that's interesting because it's like a traumatic thing because i mean that's what trauma does is that you just you have to and i wonder if like it's your own brain and body protecting you from what happened but as a witness ultimately what he did was made you the problem and it's really difficult even now to to talk about and i know for you to talk about and think about and to hear and to hear yeah i know to hear but ultimately the the one person in the circle who had done more than everyone else who had spent hours on the phone while her daughter needed her the person who had reached out who had all the resources in the world to help him became his scapegoat and his thing the thing he wanted to blame and he lashed out at you And, you know, it's, I can't remember, you're, you're like, I mean, it's, it doesn't even matter, right? The specific, no, no, it doesn't really matter exactly what he said, but I do remember everyone standing after he was speaking. Everyone stood up, almost lunging towards him. I don't know how to describe it, but well, you protecting me in that moment. Yeah. Well, if I could interject, obviously I was not there. You had called to tell me, you know, before and then after the fact. Yes. To tell me what happened. And your description of it at the time, in in my recollection, was that he just literally lashed out at Jenna. Like, it was, she was obviously, like you said, the problem. She's, she was the one trying to, to take him completely out of his comfort zone. He was not having it. And when he got hateful to her, which is probably a kind word that's yeah, a charitable it's charitable way of talking yeah he like you guys were like this is not gonna work yeah like this is they're gonna get jenna out of here before she has to hear anything else yeah. that it, it makes like what he was saying made no sense and he was he would never say those things to her if he was still dad you know right I mean, that goes back to what you were saying earlier stuff which is like that the person that we knew was no longer there and I really realized it in that moment. Like, this is not a man. I mean, you were his baby daughter. And the favorite, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a daddy's girl. Yeah. Like, we're all really. growing up, you know. Of all people, of the, all four of us, like, for him to lash out at Jenna. It was just, it, I know. And so it was such, similar to his house being a metaphor for his life being in shambles, his lashing out at you was such a representation of how much the addiction had consumed him. Like he no longer was that person anymore. And I think this is an important moment to say that addiction is not a moral failure. It is a demonstration of pain that is unlamented, untreated. And that's what he had. He had physical, emotional, and mental pain that was certainly like in his life, right? And this was a demonstration of that pain. His addiction was a demonstration of that pain that led to despair in his life, you know. And so that, like, he was being led by pain. He was no longer being led by anything else in his life. So, yeah, it's almost like we were, none of us even, we, none of us even said a word. Just me and the guys, like, we all stood up, which, like, then you stood up with us, and we all left. We were just like it. And I don't even remember if we like said, do you remember if we said anything to him? Just like. We, it was like, so abrupt. It, it. Started, I mean, because it was it had gotten it had spiraled out of control. And he was no longer being the person that any of us knew. And we just knew we had to protect you and we had to get out of that situation. And so we felt unsafe, all of us. And we were just like, we're leaving. And yeah. so we just did. We just had to leave. Yeah. And and, you know, so we wanted to take a moment in this Episode to talk a little bit about powerlessness in the face of death. And to just acknowledge that many of us, when we love someone with an addiction, or when we have, when we lose someone to death that we had no control over, like we feel the sense of powerlessness that can feel awful. And many of us won't look back when we lose someone we love to a death that we feel powerless over addiction, suicide sudden death because of, you know, some sort of physical condition that we didn't know about, like in the case of Mason, our nephew, Steph's son, we can feel like should have, we can kind of go back and go should have, could have, would have, if only. Right. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting is, and, you know, it is that Jenna had all the resources in the world at her finger, you know, her fingertips. She was ready. Right. She had a plan and it didn't matter because he wasn't ready to receive the help that she wanted. Yeah. That That's what I would say is Yes, there's a sense of powerlessness, and, and you can say shoulda, woulda, coulda, but I can honestly and wholeheartedly say that I truly gave it all in that moment. Yeah, You know, in this, in this brief time before trying our intervention and intervening, I did. I did find all the resources that I felt that I could. I did feel like I was in a space in my career And a time in my life where I could provide him all that he needed for recovery, right? All that he needed for rehab and healing. And I'm sure there were some things that I had left out, right? But for the most part, even with giving your all and even with feeling you had all the right materials and opportunities and resources, I still came up empty-handed and powerless, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I mean, I I think this is a, a really, really important part for people that are listening to understand what we're trying to drive home is that, Jenna, you did have all those resources. And there are so
1: many people out there who live with regret, or if I could have only found him a place, or I lived in a different state, and if I could have only found a place for him in his own state,
0: or like all of the things that you did, so many people wish that they could have done because they don't have those resources, or they don't know how to do it, or they're not medical people. And so I just want to hopefully give some relief to someone out there yes. who's just like living in that regret space is so awful
1: and feeling like the if I could have only done so XYZ.
0: We want to tell you that as a family, because we had you, we did try. And if someone is not going to receive it, it's it hard. is, you know, it's not going to work. So so give yourself some grace, right? Give yourself yeah. some relief. Like, take a deep breath and say, you know, it doesn't mean it would have worked. Right. You know, because that person, if they're not ready to get help, they're not getting help. Yeah. And, and that's that's, I think, what I would say is even with all the resources, a person that is addicted, if they have made a shift to a completely different identity and a different person altogether, a lot of times there is no hope in that space. Yeah, there there is no change. They may have reached a level of no return. Yeah, and I think that's where our father was. I think any resources that we had weren't going to work. Even if I didn't have the ability to have those resources, I don't think things would have changed. And so, yes, I do hope listeners hear that. Forgive yourself. You know, it. it the resources themselves are not going to make the person change, right? Is that yeah. the best way to put that? Yes. Yeah, they can have everything available to them, and every situation is certainly different, and everyone's level of addiction, level of wanting to get help is is you know different. But here we were, you know, and yeah. and this was our story. Even their ability to—I mean, like, I think that's what you were getting at with dad—is that we're not even sure how capable he was of like need of like being open to help help himself because he had he was so consumed by addiction and then you know at that point that I don't even know that he could have recognized the problem that he had. And we don't even know if he realized what he was being manipulative, what he was being mean, all these sorts of things. We're not sure about the awareness that he had. I mean I've heard that, you know, different so Tani Rosen says that the opposite of addiction is awareness. Oh. And then Johan Hari says that the opposite of addiction is connection. And so, what I when what I think I'd about lost both of that right, connection yeah, right? and awareness. That's what we're talking about. And I, know. I really honestly think if he was living today, he would not have identified as an addicted person. Right, right, right. Because he so he had lost that awareness. Hundred And then, then because he had lost his connection with everyone around him, he just like then in place of that came this, you know, the rage the the frustration, the pain, the, that just the anger that came out, you know, that we, that we witnessed. But, and so I think for us, that's been one way that we have moved toward acceptance and reconciliation with that is realizing one, that in each in our own way, we did our best. We tried to love him. And really that's in this lifetime. I mean, I think that's what all we can expect from ourselves is like I tried to love this person. Did I do it perfectly all the time? No, but like we did try to love him, and lots of did different ways, right? Lots him. of different ways. Two, we tried to help him, yeah. And in the ways he allowed it, in to. the way that he yeah. wanted us to, right? But we tried. We tried to help him, yeah. And and so now I don't, yeah. So so I want to ask you guys, like, how how have you now reconciled this? This was a vivacious. Man, our dad, outgoing. Angela and I spoke earlier that you know he. If you had told him ten years before that this was how it was going to go, he would have been horrified because of the kind of person he was. And he oh yeah, this is absolutely not how it's going to go. Yeah. But that the drugs are what changed him. Because I think that so often we get really mad at people who who are addicted to drugs. It's their fault that they got addicted to drugs. So how did you guys? or how have you begun to reconcile yourself with this vivacious person? I think you really hit the nail on the head with regard to compartmentalization. You know, you compartmentalize. He was no longer the same person. He was no longer our father, in my opinion. And to reconcile that is to say, the person that we knew and the person that we loved so deeply and cared about was no longer there. Like going through, even though he was still living, the grief of losing the person I knew him to be Mm -hmm. and having to reconcile that, you know, being able to say, in one space and time, he was wonderful and he was connected and he cared mm-hmm. and was big and lived big and had this great life to someone that we did not know, identify with or recognize. Well, I feel like I was grieving. You know, I've, I've grieved our dad for a long, long time. When our parents got divorced, there was a grief of loss and moving away from him. And then as he became more and more disconnected in his addiction, you start kind of grieving the loss of this person, yeah. all along the way. Oh, yeah, you know? and so he, in my opinion, had been gone for a long time before he was actually gone. So, you know, Jenna, I, I know you have some great stories though too, and how <laughs> you still feel connected to Dad. Yeah, I. There are some really great things that still live on, and so I remember so many things about him from my childhood, being funny. I know you mentioned his infectious laugh and grin, uh, the way that he can storytell. And I, a way that I've made peace with losing our father, not only, um, you know, while he was still living, but also in death, is he lives on even in my son, right? I still see...
1: Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: i still see his face in my son he has the exact same eyebrows and the way that his facial expressions and the way that he smiles are very much like it's, it's extraordinary yeah and and so that lives on right i still see those pieces and parts of him um i also see my son living this big life and he's very vivacious and funny and loves hard and yes. does life hard. And it's very much reminiscent of dad. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important to say that you were pregnant with Roe, and dad passed away and you got to tell dad in person the night that he died. Yeah. Know, about your pregnancy, which is really. Cool. Yeah. He actually touched my belly. Yeah. And, I mean, boy, those, those genes go run deep. Right? They do. I mean, <laughs> he, he didn't have. Roe didn't get to spend any time with dad, but you would never know it because, no, because they act alike, look alike, his face. Even our our other sister, sat. Oh, yes, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, a teenager now. You look at his photos, and you're like, man, that's <laughs> what dad looked yeah. like in high school. Like this, these are some strong genetics. And our other sister looks a lot like dad, anyway. But I think that's where we always walk the line of like joy and sorrow, joy and grief at the same time, because you can look at their face and just say, wow, that's dad, and you, you, you smile through the tears at the same time. That's really how, that's, that's how I remember him too, is through our kids Mm -hmm. and, and those similarities for sure. Yeah. I was wondering if you could speak before we, before we go about wind chimes. Oh, yes. I have a set of wind chimes that have been on my porch for several years. They were given to me by my coworkers at the time when dad died, and they sent this as a gift to me. And so I put these wind chimes up. And it's strange how I can find myself out on my patio or reading a book or praying. I go there often, I feel like it's my safe space to to think and to to do the things that I enjoy to kind of reset. And it's strange how even the wind might not be blowing, but the wind chimes will chime sometimes when I'm out there. And I find this comfort, I find this peace and this joy and knowing that dad is there, that he's watching over us. And sometimes they clang and clang and they won't stop clanging and I just know in this moment <laughs> he is telling me a story <laughs> yeah. or praying for us right yeah. and it just gives me comfort it really does it, it puts a smile on my face and and brings me joy me too I think we're all three smiling right now. yeah yeah <laughs> and so, so I think that that's another way that we can get release is if you love someone who's died especially by addiction. You know, or you know someone who's loved someone who's died by addiction, like a gift like wind chimes, you know, a physical thing that helps you to feel connected to that person that you regularly put around you, you know, look at, listen to can be a really helpful way to feel connected to them, even in death. Well, thank you, Jenna. This is big. Oh, thank Super you for fun. <laughs> yes, we're so glad to have uh, <laughs> you Say, I appreciate you for seeing me been fun. I mean, it's been, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been fun. If you have experienced loss of any kind, you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck. We get it. That's why we created RISE. It is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the Rise Journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes.
1: Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com. We have a free gift for you. It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that we'll be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website
0: for those launches soon. Also, please look for our Grief Sisters book club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club, join us anyway. All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you.